Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I am your host, Nesson Birmingham. I'm delighted to welcome back John Hoffman to Between the Biotech Waves. John is Managing Director and Head of Healthcare Equity Capital Markets at Credit Suisse. In mid-2022, John joined the podcast to discuss the market outlook for 22, and many of his predictions were spot on. It was also one of the most downloaded podcasts of the year. I'm welcoming him back to review 2022, lessons learned, and crystal ball gaze into 2023. What are we seeing overall in the capital markets? Is m now on the horizon? And what should pre-IPO companies be thinking about? Please join me in welcoming John back. It's my absolute pleasure to bring John back in, um, you know, to discuss the markets. As many of you may have listened to, and it was one of the most downloaded podcasts of 2022 uh, for Between the Biotech Waves. You know, John Hoffman, um, head of ECM for healthcare over at Credit Suisse. Um, you know, we had a great conversation really around 2022, the market and sort of the predictive nature of what's actually happening. Now we're stepping into 2023. It's January, just before JP Morgan. Um, <clears throat> you know, thought it would be great to get John back on the podcast and really talk about, reflect on 22. What do we see? Did we learn anything new? Um, and then really sort of look at 2023 and read the tea leaves. Is there anything in there that we can actually interpret and as we look forward? So, John, great to have you back. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Let's start with the depressing stuff. 2022, <laughs> what was your take on it? Like, I think you were right in your predictions overall, but like, let's revisit. What do we see in 22? Yeah, Ness, we were, we were joking before you hit the record button that I think you said I was the most depressing guest that you uh, that you had on the, <laughs> on the podcast. So I don't know if that's uh, something to say about the audience that listens and the, the high hit rate on the, the download of it. But it was uh, it was quite a time in 2022. The best thing about uh, the new year is that it's not 2022. So I think we're all happy to be operating in 2023. And, and I think, honestly, the telling you'll hear from me today uh, around predictions for 23 is going to be a whole lot more optimistic than what they were during 2022 when we were operating in the eye of a storm that was really, really tough to see to the end of. Uh, there was a lot of cross currents, both on the macro side and the biotech side specifically, that just created a, a really, uh, really tough operating environment. To put a little bit of, in, of it into context, I, I think it's kind of important to step back and just think about how the XBI performed relative to some of the other indices where if you were to ask a number of industry constituents, how do you think biotech fared compared to every other sector, uh, or broad indices, you'd probably get a range of answers that would skew much more negatively than the actual outcomes. So just to, to remind everybody, XBI down for the year around 26%, that compared to the S&P down 20%, the NASDAQ broadly down 33 I think part of the reason that it felt a whole lot worse than, than those uh, statistics, which were jarring in and of themselves, right? We haven't had a correction like that in a long time. Uh, but the relative in-line performance to the, other, uh, to the broader indices certainly didn't feel that way. Uh, when you talk to investors and when you talk to corporates. And, and I think that partially had to do with the fact that this had been uh, a peak to trough dynamic within biotech that saw the industry correct nearly 60%, pretty much unprecedented. You have to dial the clock back uh, about 20 some odd years to get to a, a time point where you can start to make comparisons around just how significant the drawdown was. And the speed at which it happened was entirely unforgiving. So we obviously contended with a lot last year. Um, on the other side of that, I think, you know, other m many industry participants were expecting some type, type of correction, but it's always hard to appreciate what the correction will cause to happen. And what, what it did cause was effectively a gridlock market. You had inefficiencies abound. Everybody has taken well note of the statistics around number of companies trading below cash. And I think that creates a whole host of issues 
uh, from a relative value perspective and, and how that ultimately impacts the capital markets. Um, you had a situation where there were a number of companies that were announcing what was uh, unanimously, I think, uh, appreciated as positive data, but seeing those data sets and, uh, and stock price reactions not reflecting the fundamental progress that those companies had made effectively, seeing those events being used as sources of, or opportunities for liquidity for investors. And then this, this whole notion of a high, high distraction factor of just there being so many different companies, so much noise in the system, having a compounding effect on all of the dynamics that were at play just created a, a very, very challenged backdrop. So obviously, it was, it was good to get that year behind us. I think we learned a lot uh, through the course of that year, and we can get into that if that's, that's of interest. But it was, uh, it's clearly to, to helpful to have 2022 in the rearview mirror, looking forward to a, a more optimistic 23. So, look, I couldn't agree with you more, right? Delighted to see the back of 2022, right? It was a really tough year. Um, you know, it would be good to talk about the learnings from it because we talked very early on around, look, consolidation in the marketplace for smaller plays coming together to actually sort of consolidate technologies and overall position in the marketplace. We talked about M&A and how there's this consistent view that in these sort of situations where you've got very strong balance sheets for large biotech and pharma that they're going to step in and they're starting going to acquiring because these are depressed prices. You know, you, you point out many companies with negative EVs uh, and a huge number of companies, you know, that I think it's about a third of the biotech and the small, small to mid caps, right, that are less than a year of cash, a year approximately of cash on the books, like prime opportunity to step in. Didn't kind of see that happen, right? Um, in addition, yep. when we look at, you know, the cutbacks within the organizations, we saw a lot of sort of headcount reduction probably on the private side wasn't necessarily quite reflected on the public side. So it would be great to kind of talk about were there learnings that we had, were there things we'd expected to see that we didn't see, and if we didn't see them, why didn't we see them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those are all great topics. I, I think maybe to start with um, with what did we learn from a, from a high level you know, I think from a, a market technicals perspective, what was probably obvious if you really thought about it became abundantly clear through the correction where there was just a, a market that was completely out of equilibrium. So you think about the number of public companies, by some metrics, 900 plus public companies, you can cut that by market cap and maybe get to a more reasonable number of 750 plus, but clearly an increase in the number of public companies that exist, uh, which was incomplete. Uh, opposite of what happens in other sectors. So you have that dynamic. You've had the dynamic where this inverted risk value curve that has existed within biotech for a long period of time as duration has bid up, uh, clearly creating noise in the system. And then I think another pronounced dynamic was with the biotech dedicated funds, you had AUM that scaled to match the growth in aggregate market cap amongst the various industry constituents and publicly available market cap outstanding. But you didn't necessarily see see the same breadth of number of eyeballs that can pay attention to that the sheer number of public companies that are outstanding that exist keep pace with uh, with with that dynamic. So you've got uh, I think some situations where there's just clearly a lack of sponsorship based on a lack of uh, available capacity from an investor perspective to evaluate all those different opportunities. Um, now, with that said, I think that you we learned quite a positive uh, dynamic coming out of the, this correction where there's a maturity that the sector has demonstrated that really hasn't been evidenced in prior periods of dislocation. If you dial back the clock to other periods of time where we've seen real corrections within biotech that were uh, sustained in nature, 
the first thing that tends to evaporate very quickly is the financing market, obviously so. And it can take a very long time for that to course correct. Going back to 2002 to 2004 or 2008 to 2012, you effectively saw the financing window shut. And, you know, year on year, those years averaged about $4 billion of equity volume. What was really interesting to see was to observe the resilience of the financing market in the wake of what was a really challenging operating environment for both fund managers and, and companies alike. Um, so while issuance levels were down across the board, relative, relative to other capital market sectors, biotech hung in there uh, extraordinarily well. So effectively seeing an issuance level in the aggregate of uh, in-line issuance on a, a volume basis really characterized by uh, some early stage private financings, but also on the secondary side, about $17 billion of, of follow-on capital raised in the market. So I think that was one of the key learnings and observations that I would have coming out of uh, 2022 around, uh, is this time different than other periods? What can we learn about the sector? There appears to be a, a permanence to the asset class, given how quickly the sector has grown up over the last decade. That was not obvious over other periods of, of corrections. And, and I would point to the financing market as a key leading indicator of that, which which clearly was a uh, something that picked up in the back half of the year. But was a very positive signal as we ended 2022 and head into 23. Is that a maturity um, so though? You know, there, there's an element of, is it the markets maturing given the the developments, the approvals, the revenues that we're seeing coming through and the new technologies? And it's a bit like a kid walking into a sweet store, right? First time they walk yeah, in, yeah. like they, they eat everything. They gobble it all up, valuations get way out of, out of whack, right? To fundamentals, arguably. And then you've got this correction and, you know, the equivalence being the child grows up and realizes they're going to vomit all over the place if they eat too much. So they kind of really kind of are careful around what they actually take in. Are we seeing that level of maturity? Do you think now being reflected in it and we're not going to see another exuberance from an IPO market in the next time this opens up? Or do you think this is going to be rinse, repeat? It's going to happen again. No, I mean, I think I think we will we will learn from from prior market uh, you know, histories that we have to, to learn from. But uh, of course, markets are cyclical. And if duration gets a, a bid back and we start to see some more M&A activity and clinical successes start to outpace historical standards, and then I'm sure the IPO market will respond uh, in spades, given the number of private companies that are reasonably financed and have exciting stories to tell in the public market. So it's it, maturity wasn't necessarily related to the underlying fundamentals of biotech and and uh, maybe a stagnation in, in uh, how technologies are being developed in the sector, but more so just around capital formation in the sector and the fact that there is real AUM that is now directed towards this in a discrete way across a, a wider audience of uh, capital providers than has historic than has historically existed within the space. I think that we, we tested the resilience of that AUM. Uh, and came out on the positive side of the ledger in many respects uh, would be would be the takeaway that I would have from the follow-on capital markets activity that I referenced in the uh, in the uh, segue leading into your question. So you know this has gone on now by two years. There's you know, when you look at the capital that's sitting on the sidelines that's unallocated, and people are kind of waiting somewhat. I, is there a tipping point where you know investors into those funds, so LPs, are going to turn around and say, "I want you either to redistribute, or I'm, I'm going to call it back, or you've got to just start investing it." Like, are we at that tipping point now in fresh year? You know, overall returns being reset for funds. Are we? You know, is the next quarter really going to tell us what's going to happen in 23, or where does that stand? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that we're. Um 
that we're starting to see that unfold, right? And it's uh, it's evidenced by the level of activity that we've seen, but also what's going on behind the scenes, the the number of inbounds and investor calls that we get around uh, opportunities where they're asking us for what we're thinking of could be interesting ways to deploy capital or unique ways to deploy capital are all leading indicators that I think they're feeling like capital needs to be put to work. They've raised it to go invest. And that's what, that's what investors are paid to do, obviously, is to find unique opportunities and relative value arbitrage in the public market. So I think that, I think from an LP perspective, um, we're through the emotional dislocation that we saw last year where it was understandable that people were waiting to see if we found a floor. With the index having bounced around at the level that it's bounced at now uh, and found some support, I think we will start to see a much more rapid pace of capital deployment as a function of just LPs requiring investors to start to ensure that they have that capital being put to work. Uh, as we all know, this is the time period in which, if you can time it right and find unique opportunities, it's where excess return can be made. So it's it's obviously, uh, from that perspective, a, a, a positive uh, a positive time to do so. And, and I think there's also, sorry. Well, no, keep going. Sorry, I'll come in with it a second. I was going to say, I just, I think from from a, a macro perspective, there's an interesting case to be made that biotech vis-a-vis other equity alternatives is a really interesting place to be. Um, obviously, the macro climate is still quite challenged. You've got hot inflation. You've got CPI prints that, uh, while while receding a bit, are still running at near historical highs, depending on the period that you pick. You have a Fed that's steadfast in their view around where they'd like to take rates to in order to tamp down that inflation. You have any number of geopolitical conflicts that are still unresolved. And, and while that sounds all very pessimistic, if you think about biotech with the leading indicators of a good financing environment, a more robust backdrop where companies are starting to get paid for clinical catalysts that they produce, the optimistic view is from a relative subsector performance within equities, what sectors are poised to outperform a lower bar. So whereas in historical periods, when everything's going up, biotech has to go up to outperform mm-hmm. other sectors for LPs to appreciate the return that they're getting for investing in what I think is a pretty discrete asset class within biotech. Now you've got an opportunity where across all equity sectors, performance for the S&P, most analysts have pegged it at something close to flat, uh, maybe up 5% on the year. That's a pretty low bar that if you can be a good stock picker uh, in the current climate, you can clearly exceed it, which is uh, an interesting place for, for fund managers to think about um, uh, to be as they think about deploying capital against the current climate. But to your point about the, the ecosystem which biotech sits from a macro standpoint, are there other sectors that you're hearing about looking at that you would say there are ones that people are trying to jostle between, trying to figure out, should I put it into biotech or I'll choose tech? But, you know, we, we all know the issues around tech right now also. Um, you know, are, you, are people basically trying to figure out what's, what's the alternative place, um, you know, that people are actually putting, deploying capital in the equity sector today? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that list was longer, um, which is one of the issues that, that I think biotech faced when duration was being bid up. So at, at one time point, it was effectively all risk asset classes, whether it was, you know, fintech and crypto and, or versus some others. I think right now, where there's potentially competing mindshare for some of these highly disruptive technologies, it's in dislocated tech. That sector is obviously finding a new floor from a valuation perspective, but also new sectors of the economy like energy transition and, and other areas. So while that always represents some type of competition for capital, 
I'll still stand by the comment that I, I think biotech uh, over over a historical period is viewed in its own right as a distinct asset class. And so while there's always going to be competition for capital, um, uh, given there's a finite amount of capital to go around, I, I do think that biotech does stand out uh, and, and is viewed as a distinct asset class, even relative to some of these, these other sectors that could be viewed as correlates uh, purely from a risk reward perspective. You had to throw crypto in there, didn't you? You, know, I had to. you just couldn't, I had to. couldn't well, help yourself. Yeah. 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 Well, you knew something was wrong when, when returns were, were more correlated for biotech equities with crypto than, than almost anything else. Like that was, I think, <laughs> signal number one that something was, was a myth. So what are the themes that you're seeing? You know, so when you say people are reaching out to you, you know, kind of talking to you about the sort of market dynamics, market themes, uh, places or novel areas to think about or explore for deploying capital. Where are you sort of directing them? What are the what are the sort of green flags that you're seeing coming up to say this is a place to start to play versus ones that you may say be a little bit more cautious around here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we if we kind of peel back the the conversations that we're having, it, it wouldn't be fair if we didn't talk about where they typically start, which is also in and around our views around M and A and that subsectors may be active or if there will be an active M&A market. So that's mm-hmm. clearly one of the overarching themes of where capital is being deployed right now. It's, is there, is there a potential for near-term M&A outcome? Um, and then that obviously needs to be juxtaposed versus the question of will it be an active M&A market? To answer that question, I, I actually think that we're, uh, we'll say it again, bankers probably have said it every year for the last five years. Everyone's pointing to the same chart that looks at lots of exclusivity for lots of the large caps and ever-growing balance sheets that are super strong. Those tailwinds persist for yet another year closer to those LOEs. The big difference this year, I think, relative to others is we finally have a differential in trading performance vis-a-vis the large caps versus the small caps. So the question historically was, when biotech was so dislocated 12 months ago, how come there wasn't this, uh, this massive M&A boom where all these cheap assets were picked up at prices that uh, were highly dislocated? Well, part of the reason was the large caps were going through lots of the same struggles that the small caps were you know, on a very different level and, and thinking through different things. But the macro climate was highly uncertain. Now we're in a place where the differential in performance is actually fairly pronounced, where the large cap biotech and pharma companies have been viewed to be a safe haven from a from an equities perspective. So you've got the defensive nature of those stocks helping those hold in. And as they look at their own share prices and PE multiples and then compare the capital allocation decisions they have around inward share repurchases versus going external, I think you can start to make a much more logical argument around how you drive ultimate value for your shareholders when you compare those relative costs of capital. So that's that's a conversation that we have with with folks at a at a high level to start around just views on the broader uh, activity level within M&A, given that's clearly one of the themes that investors are trying to invest against. So that's investment theme number one. Where do some of the companies fit within uh, the broad portfolios of some of the large cap strategics? Uh, so that obviously lends itself very well to things like precision oncology and rare disease. Um, and then within within other areas, there's uh, clearly been a bit of a renaissance within TNS. So some success stories that have come to characterize the market over the last six months uh, that were unpredictable 12 months ago have become massive overnight sensations. So clearly a resurgence in activity within the CNS field. Uh, and then also just a, a precision overlay across other sectors. We all remember 
myocardia forging new ground when they went public around precision uh, cardiovascular medicine. Mm-hmm. I think that playbook has been applied to other sectors, and you're starting to see clinical readouts that are beating historical standards in a really pronounced way because of how these studies are being designed and patients are being selected, uh, particularly in the INI space. So that's also another area of, of very fertile interest. So there's lots of different lots of different subsectors that are resonating with folks. I think the um, the story backdrops are also where people are are spending their time. How significant is there if there is a financing overhang? How significant is the financing overhang? Um, as you're thinking through whether the financing can actually be the catalyst to get a stock to re-rate or effectively re-IPOing a company. And then as would be expected, timelines to next catalyst are uh, of acute focus in any type of um, uncertain market backdrop where you're trying to compress the overall market risk that you're taking against your investment thesis in any particular name. Uh, shrinking that timeline to the point where you can see value inflection is something that uh, you know we, we spend time talking to investors about around uh, what that ultimately looks like. So there's a lot of different components in there, and I'd like to pick up a couple of them. So one, you know, from an M and A standpoint, stage of company. You know, whenever we think about to your point, and it's the one that really is the drumbeat, right? Loss of exclusivity uh, from a patent uh, standpoint. Um, and for, for competing products actually coming to the market within very specific therapeutic areas. Um, part of the argument that I've heard why we didn't see as much M&A also last year is the pipelines aren't there to acquire that are going to have a near-term impact right on the bottom line. So, yeah. you know, as you look at overall EPS, you know, the, 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 there, there isn't a lot, there's, it's pretty slim pickings. So does that mean that we're going to, that's going to force companies to go earlier or is it actually going to be, we're going to still wait and see, we'll pay a premium when that phase three data comes through or we get a really strong handle on phase two B data that we're willing to actually put the money down and we'll pay the premium for that, which would argue we may not see, you know, any significant M&A continue for the smaller, small to mid cap group. Uh, until maybe more like twenty four, twenty five. Yeah, yeah. I, I still think for the um, for the small to mid cap group that's still emerging and maybe pre proof of concept, I I don't think that's where you're going to see a, a wave of of activity from the traditional buyer set. Maybe there's some unique things that can be done on a on a mid cap to small cap basis if there's somebody that's willing to operate out on the risk curve. But you rightly point out that the the tried and true mentality that tends to exist within large pharma and biotech of we'd rather pay up for a de-risk asset um, when we've got high conviction that this will actually deliver financial performance uh, for us in, in the near to medium term. I think that will continue to prevail. Now, if you compare where we were last year uh, uh, versus where we are now and the number of companies that could be available uh, to deliver that type of post-proof of concept, near-term revenue opportunity, and actually driving bottom line results. It hasn't ballooned, but it's certainly matured by a year, right? And so every year that we've added more mm-hmm. companies to the IPOQ that have successfully priced, you're just one year more matured, moving towards that objective of having uh, a larger sample set of companies to choose from. So it's, I wouldn't characterize it as slim pickings. It's not the majority of the market, but I still think that there are a number of really interesting opportunities uh, for large pharma and biotech to pursue that can solve a number of objectives that they have. And in cases where that happens, you know, one of the things people get excited about then is recycling of capital, right? So capital yeah. comes out, recycle back into the sector. Did we see that in 22 from the acquisitions that took place or was really the kind of uh, capital taken off the table and just held off the table? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, given the, the the level of activity that it that existed, it was fairly idiosyncratic. So there were some situations where I would say, well, you look at that shareholder base, and you can actually link it back towards uh, being heavily concentrated in the biotech dedicated funds that also invest in mid and mid cap companies, and so that's very much a positive for the sector uh, as you and I think about it. So the the companies that are active financiers and and those that constitute the vast majority of the biotech uh, market from a number of company perspectives. I think there was also a reasonable number of companies, though, in that in the data set from last year uh, that had seen their investor bases move towards more of a long-only institutional um, uh, uh, type investor base where that dynamic of capital redeployment is just less pronounced. Generally speaking, those uh, the funds that hold those securities own them in diversified uh, subcomplexes within those funds. And so you don't necessarily see a dollar for dollar translation of capital redeployment uh, for situations that have heavy long only institutional uh, 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 complexion or heavy long only institutional complexion for their shareholder base. So I say we, we saw a mixed outcome in that regard last year. There were some bright spots and there were some that were, uh, I think, uh, were, were just engineered to have less of, a, um, of an impact on that capital redeployment opportunity that we oftentimes talk about as being one of the big uh, beneficiaries of, or, or big drivers of, um, of biotech sentiment. Well, when you just to pick up and go off on a tangent for a second, when you pick, when you talk about the long only ones, you know, we tend to forget or ignore the shorts. Um, do you know what the short, generally what the short overhang is actually looking like in the sector right now? And is there, is, are we hitting a pivot point where people will actually look to cover those shorts? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. I don't think I actually have the statistics off the top of my head, but it's it doesn't strike me as it, it's something that was uh, that's overly pronounced at the moment, given where the index is down support and, and moderated over the last uh, handful of months here. I think it was a more pronounced dynamic when the XDI was trading at 160. That was mm-hmm. that was something where I think it was a pretty a uh, more pronounced dynamic. But it's a, it's a very good point. Um, I would say on the short side, what is something that has categorically curtailed the level of short interest in the space has been the lack of predictability around some of the M&A targets that have been taken out over the last two to three years. So while it's not been the case for every company that has, that has been acquired, there have certainly been a number that I think the, the, the broad community has been surprised in and around the timing, which is obviously always a, a countervailing um, force that can keep some of that short dynamic at play, which just naturally caps the, uh, the kind of the short interest that exists within within the space. All right. So follow-ons uh, for companies that are out there, you know, I think 22, we saw, and I don't have the exact numbers to hand, but we saw about a third of the companies that were had about 12 months plus or minus three, um, you know, go out and raise uh, successfully. And I think so we've got about a 60% of that overhang now remaining. As we're getting into 23, are we, are, do we expect those terms to become very onerous? Do we, are people really going to kind of turn, you know, the, the, the proverbial shank uh, on these companies, yeah. similar to what we saw, you know, what back in 08 and also back in uh, two and three, you know, where you've got these massive warrant coverage that are over there and, and for some companies leads them ultimately into a death spiral? Yeah. I think, yeah, in terms of terms, I, I think the most, um, the term that people will be flexing the most for the companies that deserve to be funded in a meaningful way will ultimately just be size of raise that they ask them to do. 
uh, or require them to do for the capital that they attach to their indication of interest. So it feels much more like a market where you'll find the higher quality companies that are dislocated in value, not necessarily being, you know, bearing uh, kind of punitive terms or being being forced to take punitive terms from a, a high warrant coverage perspective or in the, you know in, in the money warrant coverage perspective, things of that nature. But instead, really being uh, uh, forced by new investors to make sure that the balance sheet that they exit these transactions with is fortress-like and effectively recast the, the, the company and the capital markets in a way that uh, is very different than how they entered the financing process. So in at least the processes that we've been a part of, that's been the biggest variable that's been flexed, probably even more so than price, um, given uh, given where prices currently are. You know, there's only there's only so many uh, you know so many uh, uh, percentage points below cash value that that one can pay, uh, arguably speaking. So I think that the, the size of offering required to get financing done uh, is where we've seen in our processes really people digging in quite a bit. Do you have a sense of companies? You know, and not asking any specifics, but do you have a sense of companies that may have gone out last year that were actually unable to finance? Um, and you know, is do you think that people in 23 may be more receptive to those companies again yeah. coming back out? Yeah, I, I, there, there is obviously a list of those companies. It's, it's clearly confidential. It's, uh, but it's, you know, what I would say from that list of companies is it's, it's not a short list. And I, I would think that I'd have counterparts at other banks that would echo the same thing. But at the same time, they'd probably uh, also say what I'm about to say, which is that the conversations that those companies were having with investors through those processes are not dormant. So mm-hmm. it's more so a timing issue than it is a financeability issue. There will be companies that exit this uh, this market that we're seeing where there's just a naturally long tail to survival, given how much capital was raised in the system for such a long period of time that don't make it out the other side and, and are unable to finance. But what's been promising for the prophecies that we've been a part of that have not gotten to the state yet have been at least a, a, a path that seems to be forming for a financing event in 2023 as investors have been given an opportunity to do more diligence on the situation that was brought to them in 2022. Yeah, I think we've seen something very similar in the private market, right? And where people, you know, companies went out for a second quarter of 22 to raise, were not successful in doing it in part. You know, people were waiting to figure out where were valuations actually going to go and setting metrics for effect, their public equivalents, right, or comparators. Uh, as you hit into the fourth quarter of 22, now to the first quarter of 23, those conversations continue, valuations have gotten more realistic and use of proceeds yeah. are being more targeted. So, you know, one of the things, and it's, I think we've seen the same thing in the public markets, you've kind of moved or rotated away from the sort of platform, basic research, basic development, actually into very clear catalysts, capital is being really used to drive to very specific catalytic events from a product-driven standpoint versus a sort of platform, which we'd seen sort of historically over the last, you know, let's say four years, four or five years. Yeah. IPOs. So the companies that went out, um, you know, we obviously had a huge number that went out. Um, there's been mixed data that's come through from them. Um, I think everybody always believes the market's always going to be there and you can always go out and raise capital. Uh, some of these companies, you know, it, just by the function of the market being open and people being receptive to invest super, super rarely. Um, 
is there is there a group of investors that are still very interested in playing in that space and supporting those companies long term with a view of it's another three, four, five years to an IND? Or is that sort of investor base dried up at this point? I think in the public markets, it's, um, it's few and far between. You'll find investors that are willing to, to take that risk in the public markets currently. It's a, depending on the situation, there's always a, a platform technology that is so exciting and so disruptive and is well-credentialed with the management team and existing investors that provide a, a foundational base that uh, they, those opportunities can still get funded in the public markets. But I think for for the majority of companies that have those highly disruptive technologies, but years until an IND type of setup, uh, the IPO market currently is not uh, is not really conditioned for that type of opportunity. Um, it's you know there is a, a vibrant private market that's still uh, taking a little bit longer to to do things like price discovery and complete transactions, but there's a whole lot of capital still being raised privately. So it's it's I think one where you'll see. Companies that have that uh, that type of profile, where they're still years from the clinic, probably opt to to stay private and work their way towards what is a viable post IPO catalyst that investors can appreciate to really be the governor of when they start to think about uh, uh, their IPO ambitions and timing. Um, though privately, there's still a number of investors that are willing to fund those types of opportunities and likely would, would be more enthusiastic to do so in a private setting versus a public setting, just given how dislocated we saw prices become for those types of opportunities in the public domain. Yeah, it, it, certainly it feels, um, you know, that from, on the private side, people now have looked at portfolios. They've kind of rejigged their overall capital allocations or reserves um, under the assumption now they're holding these companies longer. So, and many of them went yeah. out and raised new funds or closed new funds in 22. So it does, I agree with you, it does feel that now is people will start putting this capital to work. Um, it feels though for earlier stage, sort of A, seed A and maybe B versus B, C and MES. Um, yep. So I wonder in 23 how we're going to see some of the valuations for the private companies effectively reset, uh, for, you know, given what we've seen and the dynamic for both from time to exit and also valuations on the public side. With that in mind, what from the private companies, and, and I'm assuming that you still are getting a lot of imbalance where it's like, is the right time to, to go try and go public now? What, you know, what's the profile that we need to have to enable us to go out? Are you seeing companies testing you know, just doing meet and greets, non-deal roadshows on the private side to educate and sort of start to prepare for when that market opens up? Yeah, we, we, we are. We're, we're also, we're seeing companies be very thoughtful around getting on what I call the deal train, which can be really hard to get off of. So once you, you org up and you start testing the waters, it feels like you're in a process where it's really hard to detach yourself from the goal that uh, the working team has set out for a particular IPO. So there's there's obviously fewer of those processes, but there are, there are still a number of really exciting private companies that realize that building the relationship with public market investors and crossover investors can be a multi-quarter or multi-year exercise. So a, a strong desire to make sure that they're out in front of those conversations and effectively setting benchmarks for those investors as they start to either deliver clinical results or uh, progress on their respective technology platforms uh, where public market investors can almost have the same level of comfort that they do with a private company that's operated privately, but uh, effectively operated as a public company. So 
still lots of soft outreach and, and uh, roadshows being had. You've got to be, I think, in that kind of scenario cognizant if you're on the issuer side that uh, investors have a limited amount of time and they're paid to make investments in the current day, not in the next, you know, in, in year number two or three from where we currently are. So you need to be a little, a little bit more adaptable to their schedules and ability to, to ultimately engage in a very robust way. But from a relationship perspective, we're still seeing those conversations being had uh, on a very frequent basis. And how are those, how are pricing just kind of tiptoeing around pricing and those conversations going? Like, you know, historically, when the market was open, people were very clear. They kind of stepped in and said, expectation is this is sort of step up that we expect to see post-MES. Um, you know, we're not really considering anything below this. This is the raise. Are people being more, you know, careful about those types of conversations and more open to feedback on it? Or are people still actually yeah, coming in no, and saying, cool. look... Yeah, no, of course. I think I think most companies. It's actually you know we talked about learnings from uh, from the, the latest market cycle, and I think we've what we learned was we've got a lot of uh, very sound management teams and boards that know the right questions to ask and the right way to run a process given the market environment that you're currently in. You know, they, they, if you go back to the market that we were in, the top three questions that boards and management teams used to ask us were how come I'm not getting valuation credit or how can I get valuation credit for early stage program X, Y, and Z that I have in the pipeline that some other company in the public market is getting handsomely rewarded for, but investors are overlooking for me right now. Or they were asking, uh, are there other pools of capital that I should go target that are outside of the traditional biotech pool of capital? They're tangential to biotech, but focused on growth equity. Um, so those were the two primary questions. Now you're very much hearing uh, questions that are grounded in the market that we were currently operating in. It's how do I keep, how do I ensure that my existing shareholders fully appreciate all the value that we're building here and will continue to be supporters? Um, you know, how do I think about appropriate financing windows? And then as they enter these conversations with public market or crossover investors, I think they're being very forward in their uh, in in laying out their logic for when they think an IPO window may present itself, but also an openness to having a discussion around optimizing for long-term capital formation, even if it comes at the expense of near-term valuation gains. So that, that is clearly a mantra that's being endorsed by a, a vast number of companies in the ecosystem right now. And on the macro side, you know, looking at inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that, are you seeing that filtering through in conversations and overall calculations, or is it something that people were relieved to have some visibility as to where it was going, given the fact that it was really unclear from a pricing standpoint yeah. where things were going? Has that cleaned things up, or has it made things more complicated? I think it, it, makes, it makes things a bit more complicated, because it's one more thing to layer into the analysis of an already very complex sector that requires a number of assumptions. Would I say it's, it's you know, top on the list of uh, most of the conversations that we have of things that are of concern to investors in any particular story? More often than not, it's, it's not a top concern. And I think that's related to the fact that you just laid out that there's still a lot to be learned around how it'll be implemented in practice. And, and frankly, a lot to be learned around it's staying power as we cycle through or, or, or work through different uh, different election cycles and whatnot. So it's, it's something that is obviously being better understood every passing day and something that is of focus given uh, how sweeping the changes could be. But at the same time, I still think it's um, most people are taking a bit of a wait-and-see approach to, to how it ultimately impacts uh, most companies, particularly on the early stage nature. 
um, uh, of the private market uh, of the private market. So I want to put you back to the themes. You know, you talked about CNS as an example. You know, we've obviously seen some Nash data coming in relatively recently. Also, UC data, ulcer of colitis data coming through. Are, you know, and you talked about precision medicine. Are there any other sort of themes that investors are proactively reaching out and saying this is these are areas that actually will remain very interested in, or these are emerging areas that we want to actually find ways to play to play in? Yeah, so I think I, one that one that was almost a, I won't say born out of the the 2020 2021 bull market cycle that we saw uh, early 21 bull market cycle that we saw, but um, it was certainly very topical. The, the tech enabled biotech uh, uh, in opportunity or positioning that that exists. I think there are some stories that are coming into uh, coming into life that have delivered against proof points relative to the the technology-enabled drug discovery efforts that they have that have proven that there's a real advantage to integrating tech into into biotech um, in a comp- from a computational uh, So you're talking about AI, you know, the sort of overhive, right. Yeah, and, and that was, uh, there was obviously a lot of hype around that, and it was really hard to separate signal from noise, um, but there's clearly, uh, you know, a number of companies that have done some very impressive things by integrating those types of capabilities into their drug discovery efforts. So I think that's, um, that's a, a really interesting area that is still getting attention. It still is one where I think there's a, a very high bar and uncertainty as to how to really assess uh, differential performance between some of those technology platforms, but there's still a growing recognition that uh, there, there's uh, interesting technologies that are really helping biotech companies do things that they've never done before. Um, similarly, uh, a, a, an area that I know you know very well that is clearly uh, had investor interest for a number of years, but I think continues to grow as certain companies prove out their respective technology platforms in this area of nucleic acid therapies, whether it's RNA or, or DNA. Um, you know, lots of progress and, and clinical proof points across a range of companies uh, uh, that prove out the, the power of those different technology platforms uh, in a very pronounced way. So I think that there's, uh, you know, that there's uh, clearly interest there. And then there's, you know, this the interest level um, that we had in one particular process that was very robust. And I think in other market environments may have been overlooked, but just large market opportunities. You talked about it in, in UC and, and Madrigal and NASH. Uh, cardiovascular being one where we did a transaction for a company last year that was extremely well received simply because they were able to talk about a very large patient population and having a solution for an underserved, very large patient population where the economics of, of that opportunity would, would clearly yield a very positive MTV so long as they could find the capital to fund the expensive studies that they need to run, which, which they ultimately found through the transaction that we were able to help them with. So, uh, there's a, there's a range of different different things that each investor finds interesting, but that's a little bit of a flavor for where we're getting the most number of inbounds or have seen the most interested um, uh, counterparties to processes that we run. So you know, as we think about then, okay, crystal ball. Let's get into crystal ball gazing. What should people be looking for to tell them that things really are on the uptick and that we're coming out of the sort of nuclear winter that we've been in? Understanding that, you know, it's unlikely that war in Ukraine is going to change anytime soon. 
inflation is still a challenge for us, right? And, you know, the, the dreaded or word, are we in a recession or going to be entering a recession in 23 or not? Like, put, put the crystal ball in front of you. John, tell me, what should we be looking for? <laughs> I think, so I think um, one, of, one of the leading indicators for a robust financing environment, but also a signal that there is clear uh, clear capital reserve for companies in this sector is just looking on looking at follow-on performance, which was one of the leading indicators that gives me the confidence that I think we actually are going to have a pretty robust start to the year uh, from a financing perspective, at least. You, you look at the trades that got done last year on the follow-on side, uh, average offer to one day is 3 to 4%, average offer to current is anywhere between 10 to 20%. Uh, based on how you bifurcate transactions into either catalyst-driven financings or opportunistic financings. So I think that's a great leading indicator to, to look for. Um, obviously, some M&A coming out of uh, next week's events would be, would be I think, a real robust, um, robust signal that we've got something that can clearly uh, uh, outperform what is going to be a pretty challenging broad equity market backdrop. But that signal, to me, would suggest that biotech should behave like a distinct asset class, uh, the distinct asset class that it should. And then I think the other thing to look for, which is which is perhaps underappreciated, and, and maybe it's because people don't like talking about some of the cost containment exercises that were undertaken last year to really rein in cost, extend runway. I think if we can start making a case that companies that took costs in but are still able to deliver on their objectives with a reduced operating spend, but still against same uh, the same type of opportunity. That's a very net present value type of outcome, which I think could suggest that the market is actually structurally undervalued if we all come to the recognition that we can do more with less. So some signals on that front, I think, would be quite a positive uh, as well. Did we see that in the in the in the um, third quarters that came out? You know, across the board, this sort of operational refinement or. Uh, focus from an overall burn standpoint. So, did we see in the in the third quarter numbers that came out? Obviously, we're going to be waiting for the fourth quarters to come out, but that actually people were really actively doing that. We'll see. I think we'll see it more so in the fourth quarter than we will in the third. The third was, if you look at the broad indice and just uh, uh, the constituents and how spend actually tracked, it was effectively flat, maybe slightly up. So you hadn't seen it in the aggregate numbers, but I think you, you, you would absolutely see it uh, on a case-by-case basis. So there are probably some specific companies to track uh, that I just mentioned that uh, that would be showing a more pronounced uh, reigning in of cost versus what actually the overall uh, burn uh, profile looks like for the broad index. So let's go the other way. What are the indicators that it is? Get back into bed, pull the covers up over your head, and wait for 2024, Gen 1 2024. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's uh, it's back to if we see a reversion to companies not being able not being rewarded for positive clinical catalysts after a string of positive clinical catalysts that were aptly rewarded, I think that's obviously a, a telltale sign that we've got a real uh, a real issue within the sector. I, I wouldn't say that a lack of M and A activity is a reason not to not to be excited, but I would absolutely say that if you can't get paid for the risk that you're uh, uh, that you're de- the risk capital that you're deploying in a meaningful meaningful way, that's obviously going to cause people to retreat and and think about where they are on the risk reward spectrum uh, with respect to investing in biotech. From a cultural 
psychological standpoint. You know, people will talk and they'll say, okay, I'm interested in companies, blah, blah, blah. But body language. Are people excited? Like when you're sitting here talking to fund managers right now, are they actually excited or are they just broken down and, and worn down? It was, I mean, I think everybody was worn down come the end of 2022. I'm excited to see people next week to see if body language has uh, has changed at all. I, you know, we certainly had a number of very late in the year conversations prepping for 23. Um, you know, even the, the last week of the year, which is typically pretty quiet, we were fielding calls around what are the interesting opportunities for 23. So there, I think there's some leading indicators that would suggest people are, are ready to turn the, uh, you know, turn the page and move on to 23 in, in, a, in a way where we can actually start getting back to positive body language and, and people writing checks to earn a, uh, a positive return. And for, for a company that's private today that has some characteristics that are interesting from a public standpoint, you know, is your recommendation to them to watch and wait, uh, see how the first quarter flows through, or should they be paving you know, paving the way to actually get ready uh, for a potential resurgence in two and three. Yeah, well, I, I think it's um, I think it's a very high bar to find yourself in the category of company that you know we think would be appropriate as a as a first mover in a healing market. But if you're one of the companies that has those characteristics, I think the last thing you want to do is be behind is to be behind an IPO market that is improved. Because as soon as we see a signal that the IPO market's improving, there will be a whole host of companies lining up, some uh, that should be taking advantage of it, and some that may not, should not be taking advantage of it. So I, I would advise that uh, if you're really in the fortunate position where you've got a great shareholder base, a, a catalyst that you think you can rally public market investor interest around, there's scarcity value associated with your equity story in, in the public markets, or you can make the case around a significant valuation arbitrage between yourself and a public peer story. Uh, I think those types of opportunities would be well bid for in the IPO market. And, mm -hmm. and as you know, as good as anybody, as, as well as anybody else, you finance when you can in biotech is, is generally the mantra. Windows can open and shut. And so being prepared for a potential IPO window that could open at some point this year uh, in, in a more dramatic way than it did in 2022 uh, would be prudent corporate finance from from my vantage point. Well, we're all going to, well, not everybody, but you and I are going to JP Morgan next week. Like, it's going to be raining. Like, <laughs> this is not an uh, uplifting yeah, environment. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. I mean, that is, yeah, I know. It's uh, bring your bring your galoshes and your umbrellas for sure. <laughs> After a tough, you know, period over the holiday break, you know, that we really didn't get much of a respite. So yeah. I'm curious to see how next week is going to go and then whether we're going to have a massive COVID event across across the board as we're all flying home uh, to our respective yeah. homes. <laughs> now now, now you're, you're, you're doing the job that I did last year, most depressing podcast of the year. I guess I was too optimistic for you. I, I'm just, I've been, I've been going there for 20 years now, I think, and I, I'm, I'm a little... Uh, I, this is what I'm, I'm not looking forward to, I have to say. I'm sure, I'm hoping when I get out there, we'll all be good. But I, right now, sitting in Boston here, I am not looking forward to going to it next week. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, we'll, find, we'll find something to get you excited. <laughs> well, John, listen, thank you so much for your time. As always, great to, uh, great to talk to you. Hopefully, uh, you will come back later in the year and we can take a look at what's happened in the first two quarters and see if, to, if we need to reset our sort of thinking here. But, you know, it's good to hear a more positive outlook for 23 versus 22. Fingers crossed it comes to fruition.
yeah, I, thanks so much for having me, Ness. Uh, hopefully, I bump into you next week. Look forward to it. Well, thank you. Uh, I will. Uh, I will see you at JPM. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 